This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Good morning. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm the show about the most interesting people and stories in Mississippi. We have a great show for you today. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey. I am the editor-at-large at Mississippi Today. You know, Charles Evers was described as an opinionated, outspoken man who wasn't afraid to shake up the status quo. I think that is very accurate. And while you agree with him or not, he stayed true to himself to the very end. On Wednesday, July 22nd, he passed away at the age of 97 years old. It's a pretty good life. Today, we're taking a look at that life and his role in changing the politics in the South with guest civil rights pioneer, Dr. Flonzie Brown-Wright, always glad to have her back on the show, and Executive Director of the Mississippi State Conference of the NAACP, Dr. Corey Wiggins. And if you'd like to be part of the show, as always, it's your show, too. We'd love to hear from you. You can give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. I mean, if you knew Charles Evers or he influenced your life in some way, we'd love to hear from you. You can, you know, throw in and add your your stories as well. And we're going to welcome our guests in just a minute or two, but first we're going to be catching up with Michelle in the weekly roundup. We've got a lot of news going on in the state of Mississippi. It's hard to believe it's August already. Um, I think, was it March last month? You know, it's just, it's gone by that fast. And uh, this is going to be a very busy month across the state as schools are going to try to reopen. Michelle, I know uh, you were going to talk a little bit about what's going on in Corinth because they're kind of like the first out of the gate, aren't they? They are the first school in Mississippi to reopen. Now, Corinth has issued a statement Friday that one student and high school student tested positive for COVID-19. And everyone who came in contact with that person, meaning a whole classroom, has to quarantine for 14 days. Again, you're putting the parents back in a situation to where They have to be home for 14 days. So it's going to be interesting to see how schools operate within this new normal. I don't know if it's going to be a win-win for anyone, but I know we have to do what we have to do, and our students have to continue to um, go to school and be taught. Can't have them at home not learning anything because they will fall further behind. What is your take on that, Marshall? It's it's. I read a very moving uh, column in the Washington Post over the weekend from a superintendent in Arizona. And it's a small school district. It's one without a lot of money. And their governor had told him and all the other school districts that they did not have in-person classes, they would lose 5% of their budget. Well, his budget was kind of the point where, guess what? You couldn't exactly afford to cut 5%. He would have lost teachers and staff. But he also had the vexing problem that he had to also buy supplies and plexiglass and try to, he's been up in the school And on top of that, they'd already had some summer school and they had lost a teacher to COVID already who had gotten sick and died. And so now the other teachers are worried, am I going to be just like this teacher in that situation also? So, I mean, you've got here you've got a virus that is incredibly contagious. And right now, Mississippi is, according to a Harvard uh, doctor, I saw the story over the weekend, I think on WLBT, uh, there's a Dr. Harvard that said basically that Mississippi is going to be the epicenter of the COVID outbreak in the next in the next coming short weeks and, and months, just because right now we've got a really high percentage of people that are infected from the tests that have been given. I think we're like at 22% right now, the highest in the nation. So we have got some real challenges there. And I agree with you, Michelle. I mean, what do you do 
with your students um, and your children, if you're having to go to work and they're sitting at home all day and how do you keep them on task? And I know a lot of parents too, they don't like having to, to do uh, the homework. I mean, I know I've, we joked very early on in March and April that there are going to be a lot of great teacher gifts coming up next year because it is incredibly hard to teach. It really is. And it is also known that kids need that interaction and they need interaction with their friends and so forth too. Just looking at the list of things that the schools are doing. And, and of course, I know every district has a little bit different of a plan, but just looking at where my kids are going to school, it's going to be like they're going to be there, but it's not going to be like school is normal. There's going to be a lot of things that they're used to that are going to be totally different. And for obvious, for good reasons, because, uh, you know, I mean, the studies have shown that if you're over like 10, you're, you can spread the disease just as easily as an adult. And so there's going to be a lot of challenges. And I think, Michelle, I think you touched on something that was incredibly um, important. What happens if because I've, I've seen on our school district, if like more than three kids or something like that, then they start having to shut things down. I mean, what do you do when a whole class gets tested or gets quarantined or a teacher gets quarantined? And how do you get a substitute for it? So the bottom line is we are getting started to go into it. And, and my district have put off until September. And I think in a way that was wise because they can kind of sit back and see what happens with the other districts. Exactly. But, you know, yeah, Corinth I mean, was they, like they, they, the experimental yeah. um, school district that the <laughs> guinea exactly. pigs say, well, we're going to let you go first. Okay, you're going to open in July. Okay, go ahead and do that. We're going to sit back and see how that works for you. They actually had a parade um, <laughs> before they opened, which was really nice, welcoming the students back. I understand you made a point about the social interactions. Um, school, of course, is not just about um, education, but the social interactions, learning how to deal with issues, social issues and dealing with people, those things are needed for students, especially think about a kindergarten, uh, a kid, a child going into kindergarten, first time in school, the things that they learn, those building blocks that they learn about uh, life, that they won't actually get that being at home. But we're going to also talk about co-ops. And we found, we, we, we looked at this this weekend, and we we were trying to figure out what can parents do that, have to go to work. You mentioned that if schools get an outbreak, then they have to pull the students out. That's okay if a parent, if one parent is at home, but what if parents are working, both parents, and you have elementary students who can't be home by themselves? There's no way that an elementary student can be at home for eight to nine hours a day by themselves. Of course, I think it's illegal, isn't it? (laughs) So we can't have that. So what do you do with your child? Um, they're well, co- co- also mm-hmm. too, you think about it. If they have been exposed in that situation, then therefore the parents also probably should be quarantined. And, and are the parents going to have 14 days of sick leave to be able to to be able to be out of work? I mean, I mean, this this thing is just going to open up so many cans of worms. It's kind of like listening to the SEC last week talk about we're going to have 10, 10 games. And then all of a sudden you start seeing all these football programs around the country where a couple of the players went out to a bar and came back and infected the whole team. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like with the sec, they're not going to, their opponents aren't going to be other football teams. Their opponents are going to be the virus. It's like, how do we get school launched in the next month and do it without having the outbreaks? Was it, they already had the first one in Corinth uh, was announced on Friday, the first uh, positive case. So it's kind of like, this is going to be this is going to be really interesting to watch, and of course, I'm coming at it both as a parent and, of course, the spouse of 
of uh, 20, I mean, you got to do the math here, 27 years of a teacher, you know, and, you know, I just told, I told Amy, I said, look, you have got a month until we got to get back, you get back in school. We got to do everything we can to reduce our comorbidities because you're going to be exposed to the virus. And I want you to be in as healthy as you can when you're in that teaching situation. And I mean, that's, it's really scary even thinking on that part. Now, on her part, she wants to get back in the classroom and be with her kids and teach, but she wants to do it as safely as she possibly can. And I mean, it's a real, real challenge. And she teaches art. And like you said, it's challenging, especially elective teachers, art, music. Uh, my daughter is in AP art, advanced placement art. And she was really looking forward to getting her hands back on the pencil and the pens and the drawings and things like that. You can't do those things virtually. They tried um, really hard. Her teacher did a really good job at uh, coming up with some um, assignments for them to do virtually uh, with the digital art uh, apps that they have on these phones and things like that. But it's not the same to an artist who likes to draw. It is not the same. Yeah, yeah. Amy did a pretty good job with the online because she's doing K through two, so mm-hmm. it was a little different situation. But I think where the challenges with her is that she actually teaches every single student at the school, mm. so she'll be exposed to every kid in the school, not just one class. And wow. so that's a little bit more. But she's got, you know, she'll have PPE, she'll have a face shield. She's gonna. I mean, they've done precautions on that, and she wants to. But she said, you know, it's going to be so hard, Marshall. She said here's here's our kids who i love and i want to give them hugs and i want to you know i want to be that k through two you know loving teacher and she really is she's a Mm -hmm. i mean i'm proud of her uh, not just because i'm married to her but because she is a darn good teacher but you know she said the challenges she said i just it'll break my heart if anybody gets sick Mm -hmm. and i don't want that to happen so yeah it's um and of course you know we did a really good show a couple of weeks ago where we had the teachers coming in talking about you know and the principals talking about what they're trying to do mm-hmm. but i think at this point they're they're doing the best they can under the situation but we have got such a challenge in mississippi because the outbreak has gotten so bad um in the state that it's just going to be it's going to be tough yeah our guests today are fantastic they've faced a few challenges along the way and uh, we're going to be talking about Charles Evers, who absolutely faced those challenges head on, and he did it his own way. I feel like queuing up some Frank Sinatra. Uh, we're going to take our first break, but when we return, we're going to have civil rights pioneer Dr. Flonzie Brown-Wright. And if you want to share your comments about Charles Evers, we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. Hey, stay tuned. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Bank Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and host of Southern Remedies Relatively Speaking. Join us as we explore issues that relate to you and your family, from mental health obstacles and family interactions to handling life disruptions. Whatever the issue, let's try to figure it out together. You can listen live Tuesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. The information presented on this program is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information presented does not create any type of relationship between the hosts and guests and the listening audience. 
Please consult an appropriate professional for guidance about your concerns. You're listening now. You're talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey. Hey, today we're reflecting on the life and legacy of one of Mississippi's civil rights leaders and, frankly, one of the more colorful people that I've ever met since living here, Charles Evers. Uh, now, of course, here to talk about that work and what they did together to help change the politics of the South, we have uh, just one of my favorite people, and I'm really glad she's back on the show. And my only regret is that we're not in the same studio and we can't talk to each other because personally, because I always love seeing Dr. Flonzy Brown. Right, Dr. Flonzy, it's just good to hear from you. I hope everything is doing well with you and that you're healthy and happy. Good morning. How are you? Everything is going quite well. I'm, I'm doing as I'm told uh, to uh, social distance. Uh, to wear my mask, to wash my hands often, and to be careful about meeting with large groups of people. So uh, I'm doing quite well. Thank you. And I, I trust the same with you and your family. We are. Um, we're struggling with the hand washing, but I think everything else we're on top of. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when you got well, kids, that, that sort of thing happens. I understand. Absolutely. <laughs> hey, um, First of all, I just want to say thank you for coming on today. I mean, it's been a it's been a rough month. You know, 2020 has taken so many people from us. But I mean, when you lose Congressman John Lewis and then you lose, of course, Charles and then Reverend C.T. Vivian. I mean, this is there's been a lot of giants in the civil rights movement have been taken from us in the last month. They were fighters. They didn't mind placing their lives in danger for the uh, for the people. But they also fought very, very hard for something that you fought very, very hard for as well. The right to vote. Uh, how are you processing their deaths? I'm sorry, say that again. I said, how are you processing their deaths? I know that had to be tough on you because you, you, well, you knew them. I do, I do, and also I would wish to also mention uh, Dr. Joseph Lowry as well. So, uh, the first uh, yeah. six months of the year, we really lost some, uh, some some giants in the movement who made uh, such a difference in social change on many fronts, and so it's been quite. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of an introvert when it comes to sh- showing my emotions, but it's really been a tough one for me. But um, you, people come with an assignment. Every generation has an assignment. And when that assignment, it may not be complete for us, but when it's complete for them, uh, we, have to, we have to move on as we will all do one day. But certainly those, those giants left such big footprints and, and have the opportunity to know them all. Uh, when I lived in Dayton, Ohio, I worked for Mrs. Lowry to um, initiate the AIDS program, and I directed that for the SDLC for, for Dr. Um, Lowry, Mrs. Lowry, uh, during that period. And so having known them, Dr. C.T. Vivian would come to Ohio and Mississippi on a regular occasion. Of course, John Lewis, I wrote a couple of pieces about him and was on TV last week sharing my experiences with knowing John and meeting John uh, back in the 60s. And, of course, I worked with Mr. Evers um, uh, from the late 1960s up until really the time he passed. So um, it's just been kind of a, you know, it lets you know that I'll be 78 in a, in a couple of weeks. It just lets you know that as time moves on, people move on. It, it does. You've always been really active, though, you know, talking with kids and kind of really stressing to them the importance of vote. And, you know, this year, I think we're right in the middle of the pandemic and, there's all kinds of questions about voting and about what's going on. I mean, you know, voting is one of those kind of things that just I think is as important as ever, isn't it? Well, it is, and it and it always will be. You know, I'm often asked as movements change every year during during Black History. Um, I um, 
uh, develop my own black history theme. And this year, my theme is and was movement change, but commitments don't. Movements change. You may call it whatever you want to call it, but the commitment to be involved to effectuate change, that commitment never ends. And so what, what we have to continue to do today, as John Lewis and Dr. King taught us, that uh, things may not happen overnight, and even my own parents taught me things are not going to happen overnight, but you have to keep on pushing. You have to keep on moving forward, and even the title of my book is Looking Back to Move Ahead. In order to move ahead successfully, you have to look back to see where you've been, what you've done, what other people have done, and how you can collectively and collaboratively uh, work with those people and those issues uh, to bring about the kind of change that we still want to see happen. So certainly I pay great tribute to all of those soldiers, uh, not only those who have gone this year, but years in the years past. We're speaking with Dr. Flonzi Brown-Wright and talking a little bit about Charles Evers and his legacy. And also, too, of course, your legacy is pretty incredible, too. You were in Canton. Um, it was right after the it was during the March of uh, March from fear, excuse me, is there coming from Memphis, you got a phone call from very, very important person. And I, I just love this story. Um, you ended up, he ended up having dinner at your house. And who was that person? That was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And some of his <laughs> other um, persons, including John Lewis. John Lewis ate at, my mom and, ate at my mom and dad's house because we had found food for the marchers or hamburgers and hot dogs, but I was Dr. King's driver when he came to Canton, and he said, he's a Flonzi, he said, I want some soul food. So I called my mother, and I said, Mother, Dr. King, uh, can, you, can you cook a meal for Dr. King and, and four or five of his, uh, his, his, uh, his people? She said, give me an hour, and, and in one hour, I took Dr. King, John Lewis, um, Andrew Young, and some others to my mom and dad's home where she had prepared a very delicious um, full-course meal. And, of course, I saved those dishes for many years, and I didn't know what I was going to do with the dishes that Dr. King ate out of, but I kept them separate from the set. And, of course, two years ago, I donated those dishes to the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum. and They're on display now. But someone had told Dr. King, of my uh, activism in Canton, and not only mine, but a lot of other people as well. And so when I, my phone rang, we had no caller ID. I had no idea who was on the line. But, of course, when I answered the phone, and he identified himself, and I knew the voice. And he, and he said, I asked him, I said, well, uh, how can I help you? He said, well, someone has told me that if I wanted to get something done in Canton, I needed to call you. I said, okay, what can I do? Can you provide housing and food for 3,000 people? Well, that was a tall order, but without any hesitation, I told him, yes, I can. And and I knew, well, when I hung up, I got kind of nervous. I said, oh, my God, how am I going to pull this off? But then I remembered how cohesive Madison County and the community was. And I remembered that we could pick up the phone and call people to say, can you fix an extra pot of peas? Can you fix an extra pot of greens? Or can you fix uh, some more hot dogs? And we um, met with all the restaurant restaurant owners in Canton on Hickory Street, and they prepared double and triple the amount that they normally prepare so that when those tired, hungry marches reached Canton, we were able to successfully feed them. And Father Luke Mitchell, who was the, the priest at the Holy Child Jesus Gym, opened up the gymnasium. People opened up their homes, their back porches, their front yards, their lawn chairs, and we were able to 
sleep, all of those marchers who had come through Canada, the Freedom House, uh, where George Raymond stayed, and now that uh, that facility has been um, re re redone by Glenn Cotton, who is the grandson of Mr. and Mrs. George Washington. So the community was so together because we were so concerned about getting this right to vote, and we would have done anything to get this right to vote. And I just want to say, we had no idea, Marshall, and your listeners, that we were actually making history. We were doing what we were doing because we thought it was the right thing to do, not because we would be in history books and on TV and on radio and newspapers, because none of us knew we would even live to see the next day because of our lives were under constant threat. Um, our homes were un under constant being watched all the time by the Klan, as well as mine. But, you know, we did it because it was the right thing to do. And, of course, Charles Evers played a very integral role in that as well because he was really my teacher, my mentor. I had not long uh, returned from Los Angeles, and I knew very little about the civil rights movement. And so I met Charles one night because our local president, Mr. Rosamond Boyd, was trying to reorganize the NAACP. And I spoke at a mass meeting one night where Charles was the keynote speaker. And after uh, the meeting was over, he approached me. And again, in collaboration with Mr. Boyd, uh, told me that the state NAACP wanted an office in Canton because we had a 70% majority African-American population with the potential of about 10,000 blacks being registered, but only about 100 were. And so he said that this was a county that they could spend resources and time in to try and, to try and get the right to vote. And so in contemplating opening an office in Canton, he asked me right away, he said, I just want, I want you to come to work for the Canton NACP. I said, well, I, that, I have to think about that because I had no idea that he was even thinking of um, me and even opening. I knew that the office was being open, but I didn't know who it was. But after he heard me speak that night at the mass meeting, he said, in my opinion, uh, you, the comments that you made about voting and getting people out and the energy that you bring, I would like to see you staff the NAACP office in Canton. There was no space, and Mr. Boyd, ironically, was negotiating some space from a white man who owned that particular facility. And of course, the long and short is that we were able to get that space, open up the NACP office. Uh, shortly after that, I went to Washington to testify before the subcommittee to send federal examiners in, and ironically, the office space that uh, the federal examiners occupied was two doors from the NACP office in Kansas. So it was a lot of activity going on with CORE, COFO, SNCC, SCLC, NAACP, DEP, which was John Lewis's organization, a fundraising arm to help get people to the polls to vote. And so we were just working cohesively to do whatever we had been asked to do uh, to try and really bring about this thing we understood to be civil rights and the right to vote. Yeah, you really touched on something very powerful. You said you didn't do it for the glory. You didn't, like you said, there wasn't a lot of glory when you feel like your life's under threat all the time, but you did it because it was the right thing to do. And and I think about Charles's life and I think about your life and you both were trailblazers in the sense that you were both first. You were the first African-American female elected official in Mississippi and he was the first uh, African-American mayor. And that, that had to be something, I mean, 
of course, you know, I know you well enough to know that you don't sit there and you don't look at say, well, I did this, this, and this. You're looking at like, what can I can do now? But still, that had to be pretty cool. When you met Charles, what was he like when he was young? Because I mean, I know he had that burden of grief from losing his brother at that time too. Right. Well, he was he was motivating, uh, and of course, you 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 know that he and Medgar had made a pact. I'm sure you know about that. Maybe maybe. Maybe maybe some of your listeners don't know, but he and Medgar had made a pact. They were outspoken young men in that community in Decatur, and they made a pact because they felt that one of them would be killed during that time. They made a wow. pact that whichever brother was killed, that the other brother would come and take up the work of the other. Well, Medgar was killed on, on Wednesday, June 12, 1963. Charles came to Mississippi on Thursday. And, and, and he he remained in Mississippi until he passed away. He took up the banner. He, he took up the torch that Medgar had left being field secretary of the NAACP. And so um, uh, the things that he did to try and uh, make, uh, to bring about change, Charles was tough. Uh, Charles was almost today, as we would call a bully. And when he would get those threatening phone calls, he would tell him, he said, okay, you come after me. I got something for you. you come on. So you, you're going to kill me? You bring it on. And I, I've got something for you. We'll see who died first. And so I think a lot of that was bluff and bully because in the quiet moments when he was training us on how to actually organize, he was one of the kindest, most patient men that I have ever had the chance to organize uh, uh, groups with. And so while he was this big, tall, tiring giant who walked, walked hard, talked fast and with, with his big eyes, that really pierced your soul, you knew that whether you agree with him or not, you had to respect what he was saying. And so he was fearless, and he taught us to be fearless. And even though there was sometimes my knees would be knocking, I'd be at a meeting, and I would be afraid the first time I got arrested was that, as a matter of fact, in Natchez, in a, in a, uh, in a march that was led uh, by Charles and some others at night. And so that was the, the, the time that I got arrested was in Natchez. But, of course, um, we were out of jail pretty quickly because I think because Charles had the power of persuasion, uh, he was able to, pers to persuade and to negotiate our release pretty quickly. But working with him, I learned so much. And um, not only that, in, a, in, in my way of trying to pay tribute back to him, when I was on staff at Miami University as uh, the first uh, student affairs scholar in residence, um, I, I organized a program that was called uh, the Mississippi Living Legends Series. And in that series, I brought up to my university six people because I wanted my faculty, staff, and students to see the folks that they had been reading about and hearing about. And so I brought up Congressman Benny Thompson, uh, the Honorable James Meredith, Dr. Beverly Wade Hogan, Mrs. Alice Scott, the first black mayor of my hometown of Canton, Attorney Constance Slaughter Harvey, and then Charles Evers was the speaker. And these students and faculty and community, I mean, we had a 
400-seat facility uh, in our in our conference room, our conference area, and it was standing room only because this was an opportunity for people, quote, in the north, but even though it's still up south, uh, to see and meet a Bennett Thompson, a James Meredith, a Charles Evers. And so we, um, that program was quite successful, and uh, people from the community came to just hear him, and he talked about the challenges that we had had in Mississippi, but again, uh, what we must teach our young because we'll pass off the scene one day. And if we if we don't prepare our young people to carry the torch just as John did, then, of course, then um, they would be lost. And the third thing that he impacted my life with, when, when, the, when the Canton, when Canton, Mississippi, dedicated the city hall courtroom in my honor, I asked him to come and speak, and of course, he he was 94 at that time. He drove up by himself, speak, spoke, uh, was well-received, and so he has really meant a lot to my life on a very professional basis because he taught me all that I knew about organizing, and I'm I'm into this now for almost 58 years, and my commitment has not changed, but thanks to him and others who paved the way. I want to be... I want to also be paving the way for even generations yet unborn. We're talking with civil rights pioneer, Dr. Flonzy Brown-Wright. Of course, if you'd like to chime in with any stories about Charles Evers, you can give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. I want to go back and touch on a little bit. You were talking about the training that you did and, and how it affected you and how he was such a good trainer and everything. Tell us a little bit about that training, about some of the things that they taught you, because like I said, I mean, that was a lot, you know, a lot of people don't understand that about the civil rights movement. There was a lot of organization to it and there was a lot of thought put into it. It didn't just happen. It was, it was planned and that's why it was so effective. Well, absolutely. Uh, in our sessions, and I also became a member of the state board of the NAACP, and I even worked with Mr. Vernon Damer. And so in our sessions, um, in, in his agenda, he would always tell us about what had happened, who had gotten beaten, who had gone to jail, who the NAACP had gotten out of jail. And he would, would tell us to be careful to, to drive in pairs. Don't go out at night. Don't, don't go out at night by yourself. When you, when you do, when you go uh, knocking on doors, trying to assess the situation so that you um, – stay out of danger, and he taught us the nuances of bringing people together and letting them understand that they are just as important, as more important than you, because his philosophy was you can have a great idea, but if you don't have people to help you carry out the idea, it's just an idea, and in my years of organizing groups in Ohio and Mississippi and in New York and in Atlanta uh, and around the country where I supervised uh, eight states and 13 cities during my EEOC uh, reign. I have always tried to make people feel as though they are the, they are the most important piece piece of this organization. This is not a flimsy thing. This is a collaborative thing. We work together and we are as strong as the weakest link and we must Bring people up, and when we see people who don't quite understand, be patient. Be patient with them. And he had a, had a great analytical mind. He could analyze a situation in two minutes, and then he could take ten. He could take thirty minutes to teach it to you. But when you left that training, you had your marching orders. You knew what to do. You knew how to do it, 
and his office was always accessible to you. And, and not only his office, if you needed him to come to Canton or Madison County or other parts of the state, he would come just to, just to meet with two or three people in, in addition to the big mass meetings that we held. So much, much that I have learned over my years of still organizing groups and still organizing people and working with people came from the, the training that he, he had innately, but he exposed it very publicly to us so that we could be our best in representing the NAACP. We've got Nora from Long Beach who has a comment. Hello, Nora. Good morning. Um, I am just so excited to hear your guests this morning. I am reading The Children by David Halberstrom, and the book. And I've, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. I was, you know, a child when they um, bombed the, the, the 16th Street Baptist Church there. And this is just all so much part of my life, but I didn't know the history behind um, all that happened with uh, the Southern Christian Leadership Council and the SNCC and all the players involved. And I am just, I'm fascinated by it. And I'm just appalled that it's not taught more in our schools. Absolutely. And, and it should be. And it should be. And I have had the opportunity over the last uh, 10 or 12 years to work within my own home state of Canton. I lived in Ohio for almost 22 years, but every year I did a Mississippi tour and I would come to my home school in Canton and other schools around the, the state and the country. And I, I would talk about this and even uh, my book was required reading at some of these schools. Um, because as you say, some of the young people don't know. Now, yes, they know Rosa Parks. They know the, the name Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. But there were so many unsung heroes and sheroes who helped to pop this movement up. So I pay great tribute to these these people. Sister Thea Bowman from Canton. Uh, Mrs. Jewel Williams from Canton was the first black female alderwoman. Mrs. Betty Robinson, the first black woman to even run for uh, the, the position of chancery clerk. And so uh, this is this is my way of trying to give back. And I encourage people. There's so much history yet to be written. And I have in, encouraged so many of my people from my hometown in particular to write the stories. But I want to just go back to something that we, we you touched on earlier. Um, Robert Clark, myself, and Charles Evers were called the trio because in 1967, uh, Mr. Robert Clark was elected uh, to the Mississippi State House. The next year, I was elected uh, as the first black woman poster pre-Reconstruction because pre-Reconstruction, women couldn't vote. And I have to make right. that point. And then, of course, Mr. Evans was elected in 1969 as mayor of a, of a biracial town. And that town was just, just a little hole. But then when he left, there were businesses, stores, laundromats, grocery stores, liquor stores, and all kinds of business establishments that gave uh, get, uh, that provided hundreds of jobs in the little town of Fayette. They didn't even have a red light at the time. And so uh, he did a lot of work. Now, as I said, the gentleman said he didn't belong in this group. Well, nobody's perfect. We all have issues. But then what do you do with those issues? And certainly his courage to try and encourage people to vote. And he made a significant difference. Uh, I've known him uh, since 1963, and he has made a significant difference now. His personal life, his political life, that is his business. 
And we all have that. It's our business to be whoever we want to be. Flonzie, I appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. And I just wanted to say thank you. It's always a joy to talk to you. And I need to get you back on again just to talk because it's just always a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thank you, Ramsey. The honor has been mine, and I do appreciate that. And I certainly hope that something was said to encourage people. You have got to vote. It may sound mundane, but you have got to get to the polls to vote on November the 3rd. Thank you again. It's time to take another break. And when we get back, welcome Executive Director of the Mississippi State Conference, the NAACP, Dr. Corey Wiggins. There's still time for you to get your question or comment in. We appreciate your call at any time. 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. Hey, stay tuned. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. They're the ones who's coming up and the world is in their hands. When you teach the children to jump the very best can. The world won't get no better if we just let it be. Na, 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 na. The world won't get no better. We gotta change it now. If you're a parent on the go, but still want to stay informed about your children's education, subscribe to Mississippi Education Connections podcast and listen on the go anytime, anywhere on your favorite podcast app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey of Mississippi Today. Today we've been reflecting on the life of legacy of civil rights activist Charles Evers. Uh, before the break, we were speaking with Mississippi civil rights pioneers, Dr. Flonzy Brown-Wright. I always love having her on the show. And, of course, if you want to comment on the life of Dr. Charles Evers, well, you can give us a call. Right now we're going to... Oh, let me throw that phone number out there again. Good grief. I'm getting ahead of myself today. It's 877-MPB-RING. It's 877-672-7464. We'd love to hear your comment. I know we got a couple callers on the line. We'll get to them in just a second. But first, we're going to welcome our next guest to the show, the Executive Director of the Mississippi State Conference of the NAACP, Dr. Corey Wiggins. Dr. Wiggins, thank you for joining us today. Uh, like I was telling um, Fonzie that I said, you know, the last month has been incredibly difficult. We've lost so many pioneers. And I appreciate you coming on today to talk a little bit about their lives and, of course, about Charles Evers. No, thank you for having me this morning. Yeah, number one, I guess this is the standard question during the pandemic, but I hope everything's doing well in your life and you're healthy and happy. Look, uh, just like everybody else uh, out here uh, across the country in Mississippi, just trying to make the best we can. Uh, I have uh, young children myself, and, and so like most parents, uh, determining or figuring out uh, how do we get our kids back in school to learn uh, safe and sound. So, so, look, just dealing with these issues and challenges like most folks across the state. Yeah, no, so Michelle and I were talking about that a little bit earlier in the show. It's It's just... It's like, okay, now what do we, how do we do this? And so it's going to be interesting, but how old are your kids, just out of curiosity? Yeah, sure, no problem. So I have an 11-year-old, 8-year-old, and a 5-year-old. So I have a kid going to 6th grade, 3rd grade, and kindergarten. And so you can imagine uh, I've, since March, uh, our, our, I've you know, been afforded, had an opportunity uh, to be able to work from home. Uh, my wife is in healthcare herself, so she's uh, been in 
uh, on the front line seeing patients. And, and I've been staying at home, been a stay-at-home dad, a work-from-home dad uh, with my three sons. Yeah. Well, let's get to the meat uh, of the the issue here. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, what about yourself and, of course, about your experience with Charles Evers. Yeah, sure. No, so uh, I've been in the role of executive director for uh, Mississippi NAACP for the past three years now. Uh, and for more, most folks, uh, folks who are familiar with and know about the NAACP, uh, this executive director role, the formal title was field secretary. Uh, as most folks know, the first field sec- secretary for NAACP was Megger Evers. Uh, and then right after uh, Megger Evers was, was, was killed after his death, uh, Charles Evers actually became the second uh, field secretary in the state of Mississippi uh, for the NAACP. Uh, and much of, of the foundation of legacy um, that we're built upon uh, is uh, due to and because of the work and contributions of Megger and Charles and for so many people across the state of Mississippi who are NAACP members, members who have contributed to organizing their local communities. Yeah, this is something that's been passionate with you for a long time. I mean, you've served in different roles. You were the director of the Hope Policy Institute. Um, tell us, and of course, you've been an assistant professor for health policy management in Jackson. What got you into uh, to, to, into this current job, and what made you decide to do it? Yeah, so I, look, I was born and raised. I'm from Hazers, Mississippi, and I always tell folks um, Hazers is a town about four or five thousand people. But I grew up nine miles outside of the town, so really rural area, country area with my my family members. Uh, actually, um, grew up on the same land that my great grandfather purchased in the 1930s, uh, and that was my experience for me. Part of my experience in growing up, and I think the thing that has sort of led me to this space and place, uh, I can't say. Early on in my life, I say that I would be in this role doing this work in the NAACP. But one of the things that was important to me uh, that was instilled upon my family was this ability to serve and have an impact in life. Uh, God has given you uh, the ability and breath to be here. Uh, let's make the best use of it. And and I've done a lot of different things in my career has evolved, but it's always under this thing. Uh, and I get asked this question often from people who are figuring out how do they get involved in social justice work about where and how. And, and it's this thing about doing uh, what you can with what you have wherever you are. Uh, and so I've just sort of used that as part of my mantra on how do I contribute to making our communities and society a better place. Definitely on that. T- tell us a little bit about your interactions with Charles over the years. Yeah, so it's, in- so it's been interesting for me. Um, I've been in his row for about three years. I had an opportunity to meet him a couple times. And I think one of the things that sort of stood out to me uh, there's this book uh, that I've been reading or was reading about, you know, not a biography of Megger Evers, but also this book called Local People to look at sort of organizing movement here in Mississippi. And one of the things that really stuck out that struck out to me is, is that, is that, you know, to be in a place or space where your bur- brother is murdered for the work that he was doing in the civil rights movement. Uh, and then you just step up to the plate and step up to the back. Uh, and say, hey, I'm going to take on a role and continue his legacy and continue his work, right? And, and I can't even imagine, um, uh, and I heard I heard uh, uh, Dr. talking about, like, you know, this willingness to step up in the pact that Charles and Megret made. Uh, and I think that was an example of that pact coming to, to fruition, even in a time and moment uh, that was that, that had to be 
uh, a lot to sort of manage through emotionally of losing your brother to this work. Um, my interactions, I remember going down to the radio station one day, uh, having to do an interview, talking about some of the work that was happening at the NAACP and some of the advocacy work, and just kind of busting jokes, right, talking jokes, just kind of throwing different things out uh, just in our in our conversation. It was very light. And at the same time, I'm sort of looking at this moment of having this conversation with someone I've read about, uh, knew their contributions to the NAACP, and at the same time, sort of having this sort of jovial sort of sort of conversation. Uh, those moments like that for me um, in this role, in this work, has always brought a very human sense to the work that we have to do and we have to stay grounded in in our social justice work. You know, I think about that. I think about the work that they did and, and you know, their groundbreaking roles and, you know, how they changed politics in Mississippi and how they opened up opportunities and everything. And then I look at, you know, the job that you've got today and particularly right now. And I think about what your wife's doing in healthcare and she's out there working, but some of the inequities that are going on with healthcare in the state of Mississippi. So it's like a lot of the issues from the sixties have kind of morphed into, you know, here 50 years later, you know, we're dealing with a pandemic that is affecting African-Americans worse than it is, you know, other groups and so forth. So, I mean, it's like your challenges now are just kind of morphed from what happened 50 years ago. Talk about that yeah. a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think when people think about the civil rights work and the civil rights movement, um, and often folks talk about the struggle and what we realize and understand that the struggle is something that's constant and consistent. Um, and, you know, the, the movement work and the work to make our community stronger, to be more inclusive, to address the inequities that exist, particularly for African-American folks, didn't it didn't end uh, with the death of Megger, um, and it won't end with the death of his brother Charles ever, ever. It's what it is is those moments in time have provided, and other moments in time, whether you're talking about Reverend C.T. Vivian or John Lewis, provides a moment and an opportunity of reflection, look at their work, what they've done, what they were able to accomplish, uh, and as a moment of reflection for those folks who are engaged in doing the work now, to think about how do we continue? How do we continue to show up each and every day to do the things that we need to do? I'm fortunate to have volunteers uh, who are member volunteers in the NAACP all across the state of Mississippi. You don't, you don't get paid to show up and do what's right. Uh, and when I think when we look at this constant and consistent struggle, uh, and what we're trying to do is, is get to these root causes of inequities that exist that limit opportunities for, Af for African Americans. And also understanding that even in this current structure and system, while people are struggling in trying to make equity more accessible, that you have groups of folks who currently benefit from inequity, the inequities in the system. And so it is a struggle. It is a constant struggle, particularly when you're, you're aiming to bring about change to a system that benefits some while limiting opportunity for others. We have Shannon on the line right now. I'd like to make a comment. Hey, Shannon, welcome to the show. Thanks, sir. Uh, I just wanted to say uh, I'm an old white guy, but in 1974, I had the good fortune to uh, read Charles Everett's book. It happened to be put out for people to read in our library in high school in Vicksburg, and uh, I read his book, and it basically did what the young folks say. It made me woke. Uh, I had no idea, you know, as a middle-class Mississippi white boy about the, all the struggles that were going on and to read about this man who uh, came home to Mississippi and his brother was killed and uh, all the other things. It just... It changed my life and uh, has ever since. I've always had a great debt to Mr. Evers, and uh, 
I was proud uh, times I got to shake his hand. So I uh, just wanted to throw that out there. Great call, Shannon. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, that's that's the thing about you know when I did the I did the cartoon uh, the obituary cartoon when he passed. I had him greeting Medgar in heaven, and I figured that was probably the thing that I when I've thought about him his whole life and his relationship with his brother, and to know that he's being cremated and his ashes are being spread on Megger's grave that mm-hmm. just absolutely is just rips your heart out. It's just so incredibly touching. Uh, any final thoughts on? them and their relationship you know it's it's interesting even as you said i reflect in my own personal sort of space i have two brothers myself i'm the oldest of three boys and to think about their relationship and their kinship and all of the the joking the back and forth but even when you think about those moments of seriousness when you reach out to each other uh and stand together to be supportive of, uh, of each other um i think when you think about that just the love the love the relationship with brothers um, to be engaged in a type of work that was dangerous, right? That a work that, but it was work that was needed, um, um, that had to be done, and they and they responded to that call. Uh, I think when you think about those, those Doctor Wiggins, we we got to wrap up. We're at the end of the show. I just appreciate you being on with us today. Thank you so much, and we'll we'll, we'll have you back on another time. I'd love to talk to you some more. Well, we've sure, come to the sure. end of another great show. We want to thank our guest, civil rights pioneer, Dr. Flonzy Brown-Wright, and executive director of the Mississippi State Conference of the NAACP, Dr. Corey Wiggins, for joining us today. Uh, if you've missed our live program, you can always listen to the whole show at Now You're Talking at Mississippi mpbonline.org. Now You're Talking is a production of MPB Think Radio. It's produced by Michelle McAdoo. Stay tuned. Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit with Dr. Josie Bibble is coming up next. Stay safe. Have a great week. We'll talk to you next Monday.